Well, good morning, my friends. It's good to see you. It's good to be back with you all. When, when I'm gone, even if it's a week or so, man, I miss you. And I realize now I owe a lot of you emails and texts as I look out. <laughs> I'll get back to you soon. But it is, good. it is good to be back. And when I do come back, it, it just reminds me of the honor. Um, dude, oh, so good to see you guys. It reminds me of the honor and um, the joy of being in this pulpit. So thank you um, for the opportunity to be up here and to be one of your pastors. Now, uh, my aim today, my goal is really simple but it's, it's pivotal. It's really it's not complicated, but it's, it's crucial. And so my aim, my goal today is that we might move all the more from talking about God to talking with God. That we might move more from talking about God to talking with God. And now I'm not knocking talking about God. God. We should talk about him, of course, incessantly, all the time, and I imagine probably a lot more than we currently do. After all, we talk about those that we love, but we should also talk with those we love, right? We should talk with those we love. It's how intimacy grows, and, and I would venture, venture a guess today that given the anemic state of the church in the West, and given the really pale statistics on belief and church engagement in our area. By the way, our Bay Area being on the top of the list for the unchurched and de-churched regions in the United States. It seems that there is a lot more talk about God than there is talk with God. And you cannot have a relationship with somebody merely by talking about them. I think we intuit that. We, We understand that. We can't have a relationship with someone merely by thinking about them or reading about them, but we have to have a relationship of talking with them, right, in order for intimacy to grow. A sports commentator has a very different kind of relationship with the player that they're analyzing or or talking about than do the children or the spouse of that player. That makes sense. Well, we're children of God. We're children of God, not mere commentators or analyzers. So there is a qualitative difference between talking about someone and talking with someone. So just imagine with me for a moment, you're at a coffee shop and you're, you're on your laptop, you're working, or you're talking with somebody, but there's a conversation happening right behind you, so you do what you pretend you don't do, which is like lean in a little bit, just to eavesdrop and just, just to listen. And you hear him talk about Steph Curry, and they're talking about how he's doing, the season, uh, the past uh, game, how everything's going. Okay, it's kind of normal. But let's say it's a different conversation you hear. You hear the person behind you say, you know, I was with Steph this week, and he was talking about how he was dealing emotionally with things in last season and this season, and how things are going with the family, and he's just so genuine. I love, I love this guy. Suddenly, there's a, there's a different thing that happens. You lean in just a little bit further, because it's easy to talk about someone. But it's different when somebody talks with someone. So you're listening into a different conversation because this person was with somebody. They're not just talking about somebody that everybody seems to know. So all this to say, we are going to be talking about prayer today. We're going to be talking about prayer. And today as we take steps into this new year, steps into 2023, we are going to be taking some steps towards reimagining prayer, towards 
if I can use the word this way, towards demythologizing prayer, so to speak. Learning to see it and practice it as Jesus taught it and Jesus modeled it. And so we're going to be leaning into cultivating this life of unceasing prayer, which happens to be one of our elemental practices as apprentices of Jesus. Because an apprentice of Jesus is someone who talks with God. They're not just somebody who analyzes God, talks about God, but they're somebody who talks with God. So today's sermon is simply called From About to With. From About to With. And I have the joy of preaching from John chapter 17, which has been called the High Priestly Prayer. The High Priestly Prayer of Jesus. And over the course of the next few weeks, in January, we will see why it has been called the High Priestly Prayer. Now chapter 17 of John is the longest and most intimate of Jesus' prayers that we have recorded So let's do this, let's set the stage because this prayer doesn't appear out of nowhere. It appears out of the earth or the soil or the dust, the sights, the sounds, the smells of the story that we're in. And the story that we are in is the gospel or the good news of Jesus according to John who is writing the book that we are reading here. So here's a a brief visual. Uh, You guys have seen this before if you've been with us for a while, but uh, here's a visual of the structure of the book of John. Here's how it works. It's in four key parts. Prologue, book of signs, book of glory, epilogue. Or basically you can divide it in half. There's intro, but then the main first chunk is called the book of signs. Signs, symbols, uh, revealing who Jesus is. And then the book flips on a pivot there from chapter 12 to 13, the murder plot and the Passover meal. And chapter 13 on to 20 is the book of glory. We get to see who this suffering king is. And then we end with an epilogue. That then sends us back to the prologue and we read it in a cyclical fashion to get it into us because this is meditation literature. It's not just about information. It's about formation, which means we have to get it into us and breathe it and digest it and metabolize it. So that's the basic structure. Now we're going to be in John chapter 17 today, but what precedes that are the first chapters, well, chapter 13 through 16 here. And so what's going on in these chapters? Well, actually, let me push even further back. The first half. What's going on in the first half? Jesus is teaching like no other teacher has taught. Jesus is healing like no other healer has healed. He's casting out demons and darkness like no one has ever seen. He's bringing love and mercy, and he's, he's pulling together this ragtag crew of apprentices who will follow him, who will help him usher in the kingdom of heaven to the wreckage of the earth. Then comes chapter 13, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, where Jesus puts on the servant's towel, bends down on his knees, and wipes the nasty feet of his disciples who have been walking through the crud of the city. And then they eat this Passover meal, remembering, celebrating, praising God who had liberated the people in the past, and Jesus says he's doing it in a whole new way now through him. Jesus teaches them about apprenticeship, what he's doing through him as a savior. This is a master class on apprenticeship. And then he prays to his father in front of them. This is chapter 17. He doesn't just talk about his father. He talks with his father. And and here's the thing. Jesus prays for them. And I mean this in two senses. Jesus prays for them and Jesus prays for them. In other words, He prays on their behalf. He intercedes. He goes to the Father on their behalf. But then he also prays for them so they can hear and see Jesus talking to his Father. He could have done this in isolation, couldn't he? He could have done this alone. 
but he prayed in their earshot for a reason. He wants them to hear. He wants them to eavesdrop in on this dialogue. He wants them to know how he talks with his father. He wanted them, and he wants us to lean in, to listen, and to learn. Now this chapter, chapter 17, can be divided into three parts. So those three parts are are simply this. Uh, First part, Jesus prays for himself. That's verses 1 through 5, which we're going to look at today. The second part is verses 6 through 19. That's Jesus praying for his current disciples, those who he is with at the time. And then he moves to the part three, Jesus praying for his future apprentices. He prays for us. That's an incredible thought. Sometimes we think if we could just have some famous person, some, some pastor, some religious leader that we really like pray for us, then everything would be okay. Well, what if Jesus himself prayed for you? Well, he has, and he does, and he still intercedes on our behalf, which is just an incredible thought. So with that said, let's get into it. Verse 1, John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, okay, What are these words? Well, that's the master class and apprenticeship that we were talking about in the previous chapters. He's been teaching them. After he said these words, after he taught them, now he's going to pray. It says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, Jesus did this on a number of occasions. There's at least three that I I counted this past week. But he does this on a number of occasions. It's, It's a way of saying that his father is in heaven overseeing all of this world. Then he goes on and it says, and said, and said, Father, the hour has come. So notice that word said, by the way. It's it's just the simple word for talking, for speaking. In other words, Jesus, yeah, he's praying, but he's just talking to his father. Jesus was always talking with his father. He would go out to the desolate places to talk with him. He would talk with them amidst crowds. He would talk to his father in the middle of being with his apprentices, being with his disciples. It was his delight. It was his joy. It was was his nourishment. It was the posture of his heart. It was his way of being to talk with his father, to be in dialogue with his father. It was was his way. And so with that, I think what we need to do is we need to demythologize prayer here a little bit because I think we've grown up with some really bizarre notions of what prayer is. I mean, I know, I know I did. I think many of us have grown up thinking prayer is something done in an altered voice or in some formulaic way or done only with a specific body position. I mean, did you know that you can pray with your eyes open without your hands folded? Did you know that you could pray without King James English somehow creeping into your sentences halfway, halfway through the prayer. So let, let me be clear. Prayer is special. Prayer is a gift. It's, it's a wonder. It, it's, it's miraculous. It's as the English poet George Herbert said, prayer is a church's banquet, the angel's age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, God, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, It's all of this. It's glorious and it is a gift. But I think we've often made it, I don't know, weird. We've made prayer somehow weird, artificial, compartmentalized, merely functional or some kind of technique to pull on heaven. 
But honestly, prayer should be like breathing. It should be unceasing. And yes, sometimes you even need to learn how to breathe, and I'll talk about that a little bit next week. But the problem is, uh, when you say something like, we should have a life of unceasing prayer, we go, (laughs) no, like that's not going to happen. I have to work, you know. I have to be with my family and tend to all sorts of things. I just can't be praying all day long. But that gives us a way, that gives our understanding of what prayer is a way. Because we think we can't be praying unceasing and still do all these other things. So how about this? Um, If I said to you, you should practice unceasing breathing all day long, you wouldn't say, I'm out. I mean, i got to work. You know, i got to be with my family. i got to take care of my kids. I can't keep breathing all day long. Like, That just makes zero sense, right? Because it's that unceasing breathing that allows and energizes and motivates you to do those other things. Without the breathing, you can't do those other things. It's very similar with prayer. A life of unceasing prayer is what energizes, is what animates us to do the things that we need to do to live the life of love that we are called to live well in this world. So unceasing prayer. What is it? Well... Unceasing prayer is talking with God first and most about everything. Unceasing prayer is talking with God first and most about everything. This is such a freeing understanding of what prayer is. When you wake up, good morning, Father. Thank you for sleep. If you got it, if you have kids, thank you for kids, and I'll sleep later. Thank you for a bed. Thank you for... Thank you for a home. Oh man, the sun's out, Lord. I love it when the sun's out first thing in the morning. I'm hearing the birds. You're talking. You're you're dialoguing. When you're eating breakfast, Lord, give me perspective today because honestly, I felt really ungrateful lately. And I know the Christmas season has just passed and I should be thankful, but I feel really, ugh, gross in my soul. Would you help me with my perspective? Would you help me to see? Because here's how I was seeing yesterday and I'm still feeling it today. Or maybe when you're driving, Lord, give me patience, 580, come on, help me out. Or when you're in the meeting, I'm feeling it, Lord, I'm feeling reactive. I'm not responding well, I'm frustrated, I'm pulling in old narratives and old scripts from these people, and I'm not seeing them. Help me to see them. What would you have me say? Slow me down, help me to be present. Or with your kids, like, Lord, he wired my kids so differently. Silas has been this way, and Hadley has been this way, and Olivia has been this way. Would you help me to get into their hearts and know how to speak to them that I can love them well? Oh, and by the way, thank you for Lego time, right? Speaking with him, talking with him. See, Jesus saw life, all of life, as the sacred ordinary is a sacred ordinary. And we tend to divide these things up. We have ordinary life, and then every once in a while, a, a slant of the sacred comes in. But the reality is, is that all of life should be communion with God. And unceasing prayer is seeing the sacred in the ordinary, knowing God is with you, and that you can talk with the creator of the universe, the one who has breathed life into your very being. Seeing that God is concerned with, cares about, and wants to hear you regarding matters of your life, your thoughts, your words, your job, your phone habits, your walk over lunch, your nap, your sex life, your, your bike ride, your run in the morning. Communion in all these things is a gift from heaven. 
Again, as, as the poet George Herbert wrote, teach me, teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see. Man, that's the second Herbert reference. Sorry, I spent a lot of time with him over Christmas. We need to cultivate a sacred, ordinary mindset to fill our days and to have a running dialogue with God. This is a life of unceasing prayer. It's a running dialogue with God. And so we see Jesus doing this here. He's talking with his father yet again. And in doing so, he says some things, but he also makes requests. So let's go back to verses 1 and 2. Here's the first request. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now what's his first request? What does he ask for? That he would be glorified. That he might glorify the Father. Okay, so what does this word glorify mean? Now we're going to enter into some familiar territory if you've been with us for a while, but we need to hit it again and get it into us. So what does it mean to glorify? Let's not take this word for granted because if we do, then it'll just be a religious-y word that we use that is actually meaningless and it's unhelpful when we read this passage and our eyes glaze over and then we move on to the next. And that's not helpful. So let's define it. What does this mean? Well, the word is a Greek word, doxazo which comes from the word doxa, and this, this means uh, appearance or showing forth of something. So, it means to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest, to become acknowledged or recognized, or it's to clothe in splendor, as many lexicons will put it. Or again, it's a shining forth. It's making visible an inner quality that was invisible. It's making it visible for others to see and to acknowledge. So it means something like to show forth the beauty and the goodness and the truth of God. That's what's happening here with this word. Or maybe this will help us. Let's use the word display. To display. To display the beauty, the goodness, and the truth of someone or something. So that might sound a little odd at first if we plug that definition into this passage. But let's do this. I think this will help us again. Familiar territory, but I hope it helps us. So first, think of a display, right? Think of a digital device, right? Think of your computer monitor or your laptop, for example, like this radiant display. Or think of this shining display on, on your, your newest shiny iPhone that you got for Christmas. Now, here's the deal. Without the display... Without that radiant glow of pixels, without the illuminating image, you wouldn't have access to the internal power, to the beneficial functions. You wouldn't have access to all those fun, beautiful pictures of your family that you took over Christmas break. You wouldn't have access to all of those brilliant documents and things that you've written over the years. You wouldn't have access to those if there is no display showing you what's going on underneath the surface, right? Without the display, you don't get to experience or engage with all the good stuff that's in there. Without the display, it's an inaccessible black box. A display, a shining forth, a making known is needed to enjoy and understand and engage with all the good stuff that is actually there. So now let's take that Silicon Valley-oriented image and metaphor and let's go back to uh, verse 1 and 4 here. Here's what Jesus is saying. Father, the hour has come. 
Display the beauty, goodness, and truth of your son that the son may display your beauty, goodness, and truth. I displayed your beauty, goodness, and truth on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, the work, the ministry, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. All of it displays the love and the goodness and the truth of who our Heavenly Father is. But what is Jesus' desire here? What's he really, really asking? And it's, just, it's this. It's, it's for communion. It's, it's for intimacy. It's for relationship. That we know and experience the Father like Jesus knows and experiences the Father. That is his key prayer. That we would know the Father. That we would know deep intimacy and relationship and the beauty of this true union. That is what he wants for each and every one of us, he wants his apprentices to see and know his father like he knows him. Because in this is true life. And so he goes on to explain, verse 3, what true life is. This isn't just like a jump in topic. He's continuing on. Verse 3 says, and this is eternal life. When Jesus, the, the guy who got back up from the grave, says this is eternal life, we should listen to that definition. This is eternal life. And now he's speaking to his father. He's talking with him. He's not just asking. He's like speaking facts and truth to his father. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So eternal life is not just a continuation of chronology. It is quality of life in the moment that will go on forever and ever and ever, ever. It's not a someday thing. It's, it's a now day thing. A quality of life, a transformation of life, the good life, shalom, peace, all things working together for flourishing because we are in proper relationship with God, because our soul is in socket to, to the creator and to the others in, in this universe. That is what he's saying eternal life is. It's to know him and to live in right relationship with him and therefore other people. By the way, the, the, Greek, or the Hebrew understanding of knowing or the word to know isn't just information or data. It's experience, it's intimacy. A husband and a wife know each other, right? That's a euphemism. They, they understand each other in an intimate way. And to know God isn't just to have data about him, it's to experience relationship with him. Now, if we keep going, we're gonna see just how deep Jesus' request for intimate relationship is. Look at verse five. Now, this is where we begin to plummet wonders and peer into into depths that are just mind-blowing. He says, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, hang on. What is this construction worker from an out-of-the-way podunk town called Nazareth saying? He's saying he is the Son of God that ever was and ever will be. He is the one who was with the Father in the beginning. Eternal, perpetual, mutual delight. He is the one whom all things were created through to go back to John chapter one. Man. You can't say Jesus was just a good teacher if you understand what Jesus taught. That's, that is a raving lunatic right there, somebody who's deluded or somebody who's manipulating, but that's not simply a good teacher. He's more than that. 
But what this tells us is that at the heart of all there is, if you go back, as far back as you can go, and then go back farther, than, farther back than you can go, back before everything was, what do you have? You have love and intimacy. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit. This is why we're always looking for love and acceptance no matter what, no matter what we do. We're designed for it. Right? We're wired for it because the very ground of being is a personal God who is love. So all of our emotions, they are just aimed at finding affection and receiving affection and giving affection because it is, it is what we're wired for. This is why we numb out in so many toxic ways if we don't have that relational intimacy because it's just too painful not to have it. We need it. It's like oxygen for our soul. And this is why we sweat and bleed and, and achieve because we want others to see us. We want to be seen. We want to be known, right? We want to be, we want to be loved. So in, in his prayer here, Jesus is praying for us to have intimacy, and he's modeling what a life of intimacy with our God is like. Because to be a Christian without prayer is, is like a marriage without love and commitment. It's like an ocean without water. It's like a summer sky without the sun. It's like a heart without a pulse. It's like Lungs without oxygen. So as I stated at the start, my aim today is really simple, but pivotal. It's not very complex, but it's crucial. My aim is that we might move this year all the more from talking about God to, help me out here, to talking from about to with. From about to with. Because the painful truth is, is this. Um, we can say many right things about God without being in a right relationship with God. We can say many right things about God without being in a right relationship with God. That should make us pause that should make us reconsider how we go about our days, what we're doing. It should make us analyze the contents of our hearts, of our affections. It should make us analyze the thoughts that we're thinking and how we're treating other people. It should make us analyze the things we post and the reasons that we post them. That should turn us to some serious introspection. That should turn us to our neighbor or to someone in the community to help me to see myself. Help me to see. Because to live this way, saying right things about God, but not living in right relationship with others, which is dictated by how we live in right relationship or wrong relationship with other people, well, that means we're just living in illusion. We're the walking dead. And there is no more dangerous place than to think that you are on the path of life when really you are on the path, the road of death. It's a dangerous place to be. Are we saying all the right things about God? Are we talking about him? Are you talking with him? Are you talking with him? Now recently, um, given some patterns at large in our culture, there's been some talk about how to articulate these, these patterns. Uh, they're maps of meaning, so to speak, two kind of maps of meaning that have bubbled up over the last few years in, in a different and new and I, I would say kind of amplified way, amplified way. 
And these terms are simply this, comfort culture and hustle ideology. Maybe you've heard these. You could probably understand what these words mean simply by looking at them or hearing me say them. Comfort culture and hustle ideology. Let me put forward a few definitions of these here. Comfort culture is simply that way of being, that, that kind of life that is marked by binging Netflix, Hulu, and YouTube, relentlessly scrolling Instagram, it's foodie addiction culture, it's indulgent Amazon buying sprees, it's compulsive candy crush and online gaming until our eyes are glassy and our souls are fatigued, it's habitual pornography viewing, it's obsessive vacationing, it's the mindset of working only to play to get another entertainment fix. In short, it is consumerism on steroids, consumerism bloated into transcendent spirituality. Well, then you flip over to the other side, and then you get hustle ideology. And it's this. It's the hyper-productive lifestyle. It is this obsessive self-optimizing, fine-tuning, tweaking, pursuing a better future version of yourself through endless life hacks and relentless efforts, a proliferation of productivity books seen in the explosion of CrossFit community and jiu-jitsu studios everywhere, exemplified by the massive popularity of the Joe Rogan experience. Anyone? 13 million subscribers and billions of views, a show dedicated to relentless self-optimization from chasing the perfect muscle mass to mental productivity to relational advice to tweaking your diet. And it's the mindset of hustle and grind, go, go, go. Don't just work smarter, work harder and smarter and curate the best version of you so you can dominate. In short, it's self-improvement bloated into, again, a transcendent spirituality and self-salvation. Now, sadly, much of the church lives by one of these two maps of meaning in in our world. Many who profess to follow Jesus functionally live by these. So, one example, some of us throw ourselves into comfort culture. Just barely being able to make it to church on Sundays because it's not the most comfortable thing. Let's be honest. It's not the most comfortable thing to get up on a day off to get yourself ready, to get the kids ready, to go through the arguing in the minivan, to come to church, get the kids into ministry, and then come into a room of people and you know some of them irritate you, right? And some of them will challenge you. And the sermon won't be what you want. It'll be too long. It'll be too short. It'll be too heady. It'll be too weak. It'll be too thin. The music will be too this or, or too that. And so it's just, oh, it's just easier to turn it on and to turn it off and never get out of your footies, still in the PJs. And then to go on with all the other things that bring us comfort. And I know that sounds really, really cynical. You're like, okay, pastor, where are you at with this? <laughs> But others of us have slotted church into the other category. Right? We've slotted it into hustle and grind ideology, our Bible studies, our con groups, our Sunday attendance, our reading of Christian media accounts, our Christian podcasting, all part of a relentless, spiritualized self-optimization to keep up with the world and to be somebody, to feel that we are worthy, to feel that we are worthwhile, to try to convince God to see us. It's just a thinly veiled baptized version of the hustle ideology. No unhurried presence within it. Most New Year's resolutions will land right in one of these two camps, addictive comfort chasing or obsessive self-optimization. Do a quick analysis. 
Now, I'm not saying we, we don't do things to relax. I'm not saying we don't do things to grow. That's obviously not the point. But both of these meaning maps miss the mark. Both are devoid of true prayer. Both miss the core communion with our Father, with the Son, and with the Spirit. What we need is an apprenticeship culture, a culture where we live and breathe communion with our Creator. We need intimacy with God. We need prayer. We need talking with, being with, and obeying the Master. We need a culture that has us not first and most numbing out in comfort, not first and most sweating it out in hustle and grind, but first and most talking with God. Because it's only in him that we find true comfort, and it's only in him that our souls grow towards what they need to be. Living in intimacy with the Father through Jesus by the presence of his Spirit. And so I want to ask you, do you feel a little bit lifeless? I mean, beyond the normal dreary January vibe, right? Are you feeling lifeless, a bit like a zombie, like your passions are muted? It's, it's kind of the, the French ennui thing. You're bored, you're weary, you're dissatisfied, you're blah, you're unenergetic, the things that used to make you excited, the shows, the books. It's not doing it. This is the fruit of comfort culture. Or maybe you're feeling exhausted, worn thin, like you're not enough. Your heart, your soul feels like a hamster wheel. You're frantic. You're missing out. Do you feel the need to accumulate more followers or more influence or, or more, more cash or more toys, ever scheming to do so? But do you feel like you're not allowed to rest? Because if you do, you know someone else is going to get ahead and that's going to put you behind. And so you're irritable, you're touchy, you're depressed, or you just feel like a big old fake. And that's the fruit of hustle ideology. And me personally, I asked my wife, I can swing back and forth between these toxic, unhealthy maps of meaning, burning myself out with, with some kind of self-optimization to grow and to be a better version of me and do everything I can and then all of a sudden I'll swing over to numbing out because sometimes pastoring is really hard or being a dad or being a husband is really hard and so I just got to check out I swing back and forth, I pendulum, maybe that's you. Well, the way out of these culturally celebrated ways of being is communion with your living creator who breathes comfort and rest into you. Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And as we follow this Jesus, we are conformed into his image, becoming these incredible, glorious, shining beings that are made to show forth and display the goodness of God in this world. So prayer is not merely talking about God, posting about God, thinking about God, or reading another article or listening to another podcast about God. And I, I, wanna, I need to say this. Um, I, I want to say it this way. Thinking about God is not the same as talking with God. I get into this trap all the time. I've been preparing a sermon all week. I've been, I've been talking with people about theology all week. I've been reading my Bible all week. Do you know there have been weeks where I have gone almost to Saturday night and I was like, dear goodness, I didn't even ask you what I should tell them. I didn't even talk to you. Just because we're thinking theological thoughts it doesn't mean we're talking with him. There is a difference. Sometimes my wife will be like, hello, are you in there? And I've been thinking about her all day or thinking about the family or thinking about our schedule, but I have not spoken with her, so there's no communion. I'm just thinking about her or the family. 
That's different than speaking with her. So sometimes, let's, let's just, I'll, I'll move on, but let's not confuse thinking about God with speaking with God. One can puff you up and make you super proud. And one will fill you with the joy of the Lord. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the apprentices in two sentences. In two senses, excuse me. He is praying on our behalf, asking the Father to, to do something. He's interceding, but he's praying so that they and we can lean in and listen and learn that unceasing prayer is talking with God first and most about everything. Now, as I close, um, I want to mention something that a lot of us are, are really aware of this past week. You know, what happened with uh, DeMar Hamlin on the field this, this past Monday, right? Um, the safety from, from the Bills. He went into cardiac arrest and, and the, the nation froze as, as they, they were watching. You know, a totally up, upsetting scene. No one knew what to do. Well, then, then Dan Orlovsky, uh, an analyst, a commentator, you know, he ends up praying on, on live TV because he, he said, you know, there's been a lot of talk about we should be praying for Damar. We, sh- we should be praying and our thoughts should go to him. But he said, I want to take a moment right now on live TV uh, and, and, and actually pray. Instead of just think about it, instead of just talk about it, talk to God. Talk with God. God. And so he does, does this prayer, and then the, the video clip of it went viral, like 13 million views, and a bunch of people have been talking about it, so there's this flurry of, of media all around it. And, and I bring this up be, because, one, it brought prayer into the spotlight in a, in a different kind of way this week, but somewhere in all the media coverage, I heard somebody talking about it, and they said something to the effect of, you know, he just kind of talked with God. I didn't know you could just talk with God like that. He didn't have to pull out the King James English. Yes, he closed, he closed his eyes and he bowed his head out of, out of reverence. But there was just this casual, like, God, we don't understand, and help, and, and strengthen Damar. Like, it just, it was a, he was just talking. What if we lived our life in perpetual dialogue with God? People might think we're crazy at first, but they might think there's something to it in the long run. And as a dad... When my son talks to me and tells me the things that I already know that seem so inane, my heart blooms. What do you think it does to your heavenly father when you tell him the things he already knows? When you ask him the things that you're wondering about? When you go to him in dependence, say, I need you. It draws you closer to him. And it's an avenue where his love washes over you. Prayer is ultimately about growing in Christ's likeness. Are you talking more about God than you are with him? This year, as we begin, as we step into it, let us cultivate this practice of unceasing prayer. So Father, would you turn our talking about you to talking with you?